Welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today we have a special guest. Um, and as I was preparing for this with my executive producing good friend, Jerry Lodo, he said, just sit back, ask the questions and learn something today. I said, <laughs> okay, well, I will do that. We have Josie Duffy Rice. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I don't have any complaints, at least none people really want to listen to. Um, <laughs> you know, we start our show in a unique way um, with our first question. Each episode, we attempt to allow our guests the opportunity to tell us who they really are by asking them about the arc of their career. And you're a writer, journalist, podcaster, and an advocate. Um, I think it's fair to say you do it all. Talk about your first job after Harvard Law and walk us from that opportunity to what you're doing now. Sure. So my first job out of Harvard was uh, as a policy advocate at an organization called the Center for Popular Democracy. And a lot of what we did there was focused on um, local government, the belief that local movements, I'm sorry, national movements can be built um, by local movements. And so when you see three or four different cities or three or four different places pass a law across the country, all of a sudden you have a national movement. And that's easier maybe than getting federal legislation passed. And what we did there was build a organization called Local Progress, which was focused on bringing together progressive local elected officials across the country. Um, you know, like it turned out that working in the law was not really for me. Uh, so the main thing it did was teach me that like this was not the way I wanted to come at the work. Mm -hmm. um, Whatever. I, but go ahead. I all these people with these law degrees that don't don't show up in yeah. court. Yeah, no, haven't been to court, I think, except for a traffic ticket since I graduated. <laughs> uh, but um, you know, it, it but what it did, what it really did emphasize to me was just how much of people's politics and what affects their lives is local. Um, and the just the kind of eternal focus on federal policy, federal politics, I mean, all of that obviously also matters and shapes the way that we see the world. But the people that are really affecting your life are your local city council people, your local, local county council people, your DA, your sheriff, your mayor. And so um, that was that really was something I kind of took with me throughout the rest of my career, um, you know, beyond just sort of doing this policy work. I mean, that interconnectivity of policy, and we stress all the time that you're more likely to get the change that affects your life at the local city council than you are at 1600 Pennsylvania all the time. Exactly. Um, so look, I took the fool's goal last time. Um, there's talk again about Senator Tim Scott leading an effort to reignite the conversations in Washington around the George Floyd uh, policing legislation. Based on the work you do, do you, do you ever think that we'll see meaningful federal legislation on police reform? or reforming the police, uh, or better yet, American can American policing be reformed? We probably want to start with a mm. question first. I think that American policing probably cannot be reformed. I mean, part of me wants to say that I believe in any change uh, and that I believe the possibility for change. And so I guess I don't negate the possibility of American police reform, or I don't totally reject it. But I reject it probably about 99%. I mean, <laughs> I, I think that um I think that uh, you know, American policing culture, I think that policy is born of culture, right? And that the culture we have in this country is one where um policing is really not subject to any sort of meaningful democratic reform. Um, that we um, you know, have built kind of a a culture of resentment and um, and antagonism um, among police in this country, and that policing is born out of um, out of racist institutions. It's born out of 
um, monitoring uh, people's behaviors, not really for safety, but for control. So it's hard for me to see how policing changes. However, you know, like, look, um, I also believe in harm reduction. And so I think when you address some of the problems with policing, even if it doesn't fundamentally change the structure, you're moving in a better direction. Right. And so I don't I don't think that the fact that I'm skeptical of overhauling the whole system means that you don't do anything to to fix the problems we see. I just don't think we should expect that to do everything. And so do we expect Tim Scott to be successful? How does that work from your purview? Uh, do I expect Tim Scott to be successful? You know, what I expect is that federal legislation to deal with policing, well, again, federal powers around policing are pretty minimal to begin with. And so it's hard for me to see how this really creates the change we want. I think that the legislation that ends up getting passed ends up always getting watered down to a point that it feels um, almost meaningless. And ultimately, I think that this is, again, about culture change. So I guess it sort of depends on how you define success. Like, do I think it's possible he could pass this legislation? I think it's unlikely given the structure of the Congress right now, but I Maybe it's possible, um, but I don't. I just don't totally know what that means in the end, right? Uh, what that actually means for people on the ground who are subject to uh, police brutality and some of the most harmful policing practices that we see. Well, that's a that's a mouthful. I mean, <laughs> so there may be something, but it won't won't be worth the paper that it's written on. It just. I mean, I I think it's important to focus on the actual impact of things versus just the symbolism. And around mm -hmm. policing, there's so much symbolism. There's just so much focus on what this says versus what this actually means. Um, and so I I am skeptical of the actual impact. You know, this is a very entrenched cultural Correct. institution. And so this idea that like you'll pass legislation and that's going to change the culture is a pipe dream and it doesn't matter who passes it, right? It matters that like, this is not the structure that we've built and it takes a long, more than just a couple pieces of legislation to undo it. So I guess that, I don't know, that's I mean, not- That, a, that, that, that fully answers the question because I, you know, we've given them the body cams, we've given them the resources, we've given them the training and more cops and we're still seeing things uh, like Nichols and Memphis. And so I think your point is, is dead on. Let's talk about your new podcast, Unreformed. The story of the Alabama Industrial School for Negro Children. What's it about? Um, and why is it important that we know the story of the Alabama Industry School for Negro Children? Yeah, Alabama Industrial School. Yeah. Oh, in um, industrial. I said it right the first time in Maldives. Right the first time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so the Alabama Industrial School for Negro Children um, was a juvenile reform institution in Alabama that, as you can tell from the name, was created for Black kids. It was created by a, a Black woman who went to Tuskegee in the early 1900s. It sort of started out as a safe haven for Black children, and it became, once it was um, taken over by the state of Alabama in 1911, it became this just hellhole, this torture factory, basically for black kids. And it was functionally just a labor farm, right? I mean, it was a way to generate revenue for the state. Um, it was a way to uh, put black kids away after the slavery ended. Um, and it was a way to like, um, really drive black children into um uh, an environment of abuse of all, I mean, physical, sexual, mental, emotional abuse um, that shaped their entire lives. So in this podcast, we focus on the 1960s um, and we kind of follow uh, 
four people who went to this institution as uh, when they were kids. One of them went as there as 11. I think the oldest was 15 when she went, but you know, they were there as children and what happened to them throughout their lives. One of them becomes a very famous artist. His name is Lonnie Holly. He's a very famous self-taught artist whose work has been in museums across the country. Others, you know, um, end up in and out of prison and, and trying to kind of navigate this just enormously harmful experience they went through. Um, but we look at what happened in the 1960s when one of these four people ran away from the institution and showed up at a um, juvenile detention center um, and asked to speak to someone in charge because she wanted to tell them what was going on. That set off, um, uh, that set off a lot of um, you know, it set off a, the the white guy who she told became a whistleblower. It set off a federal lawsuit. It set off a lot of changes at the school. But this kind of gets back to what we were talking about before, right? A lot of what we're exploring is what is culture and what is policy, mm-hmm. because we see some policy shifts at the school after um, after this whistleblowing event happens in the late 1960s. But what we're really trying to figure out is did the school really change, and what happens to the kids who come out of it? This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. How did you first learn about this and what was it about this story that made you want to create a, a, a podcast, something that we could all consume around it? Yeah, so we first learned about, I first learned about it from um, a woman named Virginia Prescott, who runs a podcast company called School of Humans. She was um, connected to Lonnie Holly, the artist I just mentioned, and she had heard him discuss over the years this horrible experience he went through as a kid, and she saw how it really still affected him. I mean, you know, this still brings these these adults, these almost elderly adults, right, to tears to talk about what they went through, um, what they went through. at this school. And so uh, that kind of pulled me into the story. And the reason it interested me is because I work in criminal justice and I'm interested in um, what we, how we deal with children who have been accused of wrongdoing and how we think about disciplining children and how that discipline shapes the rest of their lives. So for me, this entire story is really interesting, but what really pulled me in was when Virginia said to me that lots of the kids who had gone to the school in the 60s had ended up serving life without parole um, sentences or they were on death row, that there was kind of this I mean, when we talk about school to prison pipeline, I mean, to the extreme. Right. And these were kids who went into the school for loitering. Or you know, being out past curfew. Where where is the school? Where was the school? Outside of Montgomery, Alabama. Mm-hmm. And so you know, this this these are kids who went in for very small things. I mean, skipping school or whatever. Like they got picked up by the police because they were out past ten, or you know, and then that they ended up like most of not most of them, but many of them ended up committing serious harms um, that landed them in prison for the rest of their lives after they got out of the school. So I was interested in how the school shaped shaped what happened to them afterwards, but also how state state policy and state violence um, 
is directed towards black children. I mean, the state really had a choice, right? They think these kids are acting up. They think they're delinquent or whatever. And you could either try to help them, um, you know, improve. You could try to help them like figure out their lives. You could try to offer them opportunities. You could try to make sure they had mental health assistance if they needed that. Or you could, you know, put them on what was functionally a plantation and torture them and see what happens after that. And we know how that story turns out. Right. Um, and so that was really what pulled me in. I mean, that's a hell of a story to tell. Yeah. It's what, a, do you want everyone. what do you want listeners to take out of this? You know, one thing I really want listeners to do is witness, right? These are people who have never told anybody else this story, really. They've never talked about it publicly. Many of them have never talked to their families, and they've just been living with this. So it's really important for them to hear people say, like, we see you. We know that this happened to you. This wasn't right, you know? And so that's part of it. I think the other thing I want listeners to take away from this, ironically, is hope, um, because what you do see is that a lot of the people who come out of this school, some of them really suffered for the rest of their lives, but others made, were, you know, they shaped them into actually, they didn't, they didn't take, they didn't turn into the, the monsters. They didn't turn into the thing that they had been exposed to. They became better parents. They became better family members. They became more empathetic. And that's not me suggesting that this was a good thing to treat these kids like this. But I think what I really, um, I think what's really important here is taking away just the the endurance the resiliency of the human spirit of black people black people in the south right like the ability for um people to make it through some of the hardest hardest times um uh, that you can imagine so it's a hard one it's a heavy podcast we tried to reduce some of the heaviness so that it's not miserable for people to listen to um but you know it's it's definitely like it's not a comedy right um <laughs> but also not just pure tragedy uh, give me the format of it so it's eight episodes it's a limited mm -hmm. series most of it we spend kind of looking at what happened in 1968 when these five girls ran away and one of them says like look i need to tell someone what's happening um, but we also explore, like I said, the, the people who end up serving really in long sentences. We also explore the beginning and the, the meaning, you know, how the school got started. And so um, it's we're on this coming Wednesday will be episode four. Um, and um, and it's a it's an you know, this is not we don't this is the whole story. We're not like there's not a cliffhanger. We're not like ending on eight. And then we're like, we'll tell you what happens the next season. Like this is, we tried to create like a one kind of product, one kind of finished product that really tells the story. Let me, and you can say, Bukhari, shut up and go listen to it. But let me ask you this question. What has, what has this, you can say this. Okay. What has the state of Alabama said about the facility and their role in destroying so many lives? Have they, have they, it's a great question. Yeah. And I'm how about I how would I say this to you? Guess. <laughs> There's absolutely nothing. They don't care. They just right. don't care. Yeah. I mean, yeah. have they have they have they had to settle any of these cases? Have, have I'm sure the statute of limitations have run. Has there been any litigation around? I know the answer. There to hasn't it. been any litigation since 1969 about this institution. I do want to note this institution is still open. So it is um, open today. Right. And so I went there. I mean, I couldn't, they wouldn't let me in, but I, you know did my reporting at, around the, the edges. And so um, they, I think it's different today. I don't want to suggest it's the exact same institution, but I think many of the problems still exist. And what they've basically said is, look, we hope, um, we hope like 
you understand that we're not what we were. But there has been no apology from the state of Alabama. There has been no acknowledgement from the state of Alabama. There has been no um, no like reparations from the state of Alabama, right? Uh-huh. And so part of that, I think, is I think for these people who went to the school, part of it is has been like, did I imagine this? Did this happen? <laughs> and so the ability for them to talk to other people who say, no, that was that happened. That bench was there. That beating happened. He had that stick. He did this thing. Has been really, I think, important for them because the 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 function of the state is to just, you know, ignore it and hope it goes away. Um, how can listeners find this podcast? You can find it on any platform that you listen to podcasts. Um, it's a production of iHeartRadio. Um, and uh, but we're everywhere. And so um I will also mention it's free. I thought people knew that. My dad said, how much do I have to pay for it? I told him nothing. He was thrilled to hear that. Um, so uh, you know, it's it is um it it is eternally available. It is available anywhere you listen to podcasts and um and it's really for, I think it's for everybody. It's for people introduced in, in, interested in whatever, criminal justice or juvenile justice or the South. But it's also just people who like are interested in the history of America and the human story, because that's really what it is. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Let me connect the dots. So I want to try between unreformed and your work on justice in America. So I have to array this as well. But I always want to know why we haven't seen more attention paid to prison conditions and how much correctional facilities fail at their jobs um, than, let's say, police reform. We always talk about police reform, but we very rarely have a conversation about what happens behind bars. Yeah. How do we bring more more attention to what happens once people actually are incarcerated? I think the reason for the reason that's hard is because it's so much more opaque. It's so much harder for people to tell those stories like 
you, you know, if you're in prison and you talk about prison conditions, like you pay a price for that very often, right? Um, you don't have the cell phone footage in the same way. You don't have kind of the same sort of like public access to the experience. And also people think that people in prison are bad people. I mean, that's really one thing you have to like unravel is that it's not the innocent guy necessarily, but this is not how we treat. We don't want to treat anybody like this. This is not what we want our, you know, this is not what reflects well on us. But I think you point out something really important. Like we focus a lot on the front end of the system. We focus a lot on policing. We don't tend to focus as much on the back end of the system. And it's truly prisons in America are hell holes. I mean, they're nightmares. They are they, you know, reduce your like life, your life expectancy by decades. They're they're just terrible, terrible places that we are, you know, that's that is on our conscience as well. Um, on all of our, that's all of our responsibility. And so I think um I think it's harder. I think it's a harder story to tell, but I think it's an important one. And I'm hoping, you know, as people pay more attention to the system, this is something that they start to care more about. I'm going to send you an article on some of the work we're doing here in South Great. Carolina. Alvin S. Glenn Detention Center, I've, I represent a guy who died from dehydration. Mm. The, you know how hard it is. First of all, you know how terrible that death is. Right. Second, how hard it is to die from dehydration right. after 13 days for a misdemeanor in the shoot. Oh, my God. In four, jail? In jail. Four people have died in the last calendar year and we're working on. I just sent a letter to Kristen Clark last week about possibly... Mm. Uh, and having a civil rights investigation. One I did, I don't even know what they can do, but we're gonna we're gonna try. Um, but, and I guess my question to you is this: I mean, how do we pursue um, justice at a time in this country uh, when mayors and other elected officials seem more focused on fighting crime than delivering justice? How do we find that balance? Because look, our parents, my mom and dad, your mom and dad, like they don't want fewer police; they just want better police, right? Yeah. They, yeah. Crime is a real thing for them. And I get it. I mean, it's a real thing for right. it. It's something you feel. But how right. do we find that balance? I mean, I think I think I think two things. One of them is that like we are so used to focusing on punishment instead of prevention. And there really is a way to prevent so much of this, of these things even becoming issues, because we can ensure that people like we can create structures that make the necessity of prisons and police way less, way less salient. I think that really is true. Makes sense. Um, I also think like, we have to think about, again, I keep going back to this uh, for some reason today, but this idea of culture, like when you have a culture that is willing to treat people, to let people die of dehydration in jails, that permeates, that permeates in how other people think about um, crime. It permeates in the general a like sense of a community willing to accept crime it permeates like the ability for people to think about peace and safety as part of their lives. And so, you know, I am a big believer that like you don't meet cruelty with cruelty that creates more cruelty. Um, and so in a way, what we really need to do is ensure that we have humane systems. So we are teaching and, and perpetuating humanity versus cruelty Um, um more broadly. I mean, I would say that some of this goes back to the Mount Meg story. Like I said, right? Like there are people who went to Mount Meg's who went in for something small. They were eight or nine years old and they came out. And, um, you know, one of the guys that we look at within months of coming out, killed someone a couple of years later, killed three people brutally. I mean, horribly. And it's the sort of thing where if you heard the story, you would think who, what kind of 
what kind of evil person could do that? And he's not evil. He was in a, he was in a hellhole for, for years and that shaped him. And, you know, so when I think about who has suffered because of Mount Maddox, I don't only think about the students who went there. I think about the three people he killed, right? Like the Mount Meggs is responsible in many ways for their death, just as much as he is. Um, what we teach in these institutions is cruelty. So it's not super surprising that like, that is what is, they, they're not solving the problem. They're, you know, contributing to it. Yeah. Do you think we're the post George Floyd window for justice, mm. police reform? Do you think that window's closing? I think that things are very different than they were in 2020. I think that they're very different. I think that the conversation around crime, I think the conversation around race, there is always going to be backlash to change. And I think in some ways we're seeing a little bit of that right now, but you know, and this is actually terrible. There's going to be another George Floyd. This is not going to yeah. end. We are yeah. going to see. We just saw a man beaten to death. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you're telling me that someone, you know, that that's not a national story that someone died in a jail of dehydration. I just saw an Arkansas jail where someone died of starvation. I mean, this, these are the, 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 this is not a system that ever runs out of stories ever. And so um, I, I hope that we continue to kind of fertilize ground, that we continue to kind of like set foundation that when um, when something happens that we can, you know, that we can do this again, that we can motivate people again, that we can remind people how cruel the system is. I don't think the window overall is changing um, or is, is over, but I do think that that period of the post 2020 George Floyd, the, you know, the black Instagram squares, the, the, you know, people showing up, uh, to march in the streets, um, you know, even, you know, people kind of being radicalized for that brief moment. I think, um, it's not like what it was. This has been a pleasure. And uh, Jared was right. I did learn a lot from you. In fact, I've been having this conversation post Nichols about, culture versus policy and it's been driving me crazy mm. and you helped illuminate oh. that. yes because i was like yeah. there's not much policy you can do for this situation yeah. right exactly um, so anyway i mean I'm there's certain rules you can't kill people and that's <laughs> that didn't, you know like we already made that a law um and it's only sort of working so well, i but, mean you can kill yeah. people if you have qualified immunity but that's a whole nother right thing. right right but that's also a culture thing right you know, Correct. like that you have to have a culture of a lack of accountability in order to even qualified immunity and be part of the conversation. And so um, and so I'm really thrilled to see the work you're doing. I'm going to kind of keep following this case and I'm writing a book about culture versus policy. So once I finish that, when I'm like 87 approximately at this rate, uh, oh. I've, been on chapter, I've been on chapter eight of a 10 chapter book for a solid year now. So I okay, great. <laughs> yeah, totally. We're gonna get there. One Eventually. day. Eventually. Eventually. Anyway, thank you. My my blessings to your family. Please give them my best. Thank you so much.